was reflecting as our brother Pierce prayed earlier that God has indeed blessed our congregation, gifted through the power of his Holy Spirit, multiple people who can handle the word of God. And I'm thankful that even in my absence, the pulpit was full of the word of God, as it should be. And so I am thankful for the time off, and I'm also excited to be back. Uh, hopefully you feel that way. Um, whether or not, please turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We have been since, if I remember right, September 2020, going through 1 Corinthians. And we've been slowly making our way through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a struggling little church in the Greek city called Corinth. And the Corinthians were a young and gifted congregation. They were positioned in a very influential cosmopolitan city. They were surrounded by idolatry and worldliness and temptations towards sensuality in every direction. But the dangers were not only outside the church, as we've seen. They were fracturing from within. They weren't loving one another well in their differences. They had disagreements over the preaching, over the leadership, disagreements over ethical concerns, like can we eat this meat that's been sacrificed to a pagan idol, or can we not? And in chapters 12 to 14, Paul is addressing specifically their concerns over the spiritual gifts. Some people were elevating as the most mature those gifts of eloquence, the flashier gifts, the gifts that were exercised more publicly. And they were demeaning the spiritual gifts, devaluing those that are less prominent. But Paul sandwiches right in between chapter 12 and 14, an entire chapter on the most important theological virtue, and that is love. It doesn't matter how gifted you are if you don't have love. And so tonight, specifically, and next week also, Lord willing, we'll continue what Paul's looking at and in, in what love is, looking at verse 4 and 5, seeing that these aspects of love have to do with pride and humility. And we'll look at them slowly and in depth because they are very important. But let's read our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll begin in verse 1. This is God's word for us this evening. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now the section that's probably most familiar to you, and perhaps as a way to keep its familiarity from being a stumbling block to us, take note that you can read this passage and replace love with something else. So you could say, I am patient. I am kind. I do not envy or boast say, is that true of me? We could say, Morning View is patient. Morning View is kind. Morning View does not boast. Is that true? It's worthy of our reflection. But don't just stop there. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. And so look at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now in part, but then we shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we ask most simply that you would help us to love. That you would help us to be humbled by your initiative-taking love, your acting love, your effectual love that you have brought down from heaven, that we might be brought up to heaven. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned, we're looking at the end of verse 4 this week, and Lord willing, we'll get to verse 5 next week, and I want to keep them together because they are related. At the end of verse 4, love does not boast. We might translate it, love doesn't brag about itself. We could even go back to the old King James, for those of you that remember. Love vaunteth not itself. Do we have many self-vaunters in here? It's not very helpful language to us today. The New King James puts it in a way that's a little more approachable for us. It says, love does not parade itself, which I think is helpful language. We've all met someone who is prideful, and their favorite pastime is regaling about all the wonderful things that they have done, how wonderful they are, boasting in self, seeking their own glory. That's what gets them out of bed in the morning. You see this kind of boasting, most crassly among the politicians perhaps, who seem almost to be rewarded these days for speaking about how wonderful they are and how many things they have accomplished. Likewise, professional athletes, the Corinthian gods of our day, they boast of their performances with almost comedic unawareness of their arrogance. You see it in the post-game interviews. Right? The, the person will come up and say, you know, uh, Bo Jackson, how did you run for 10 bazillion yards today and score 100 touchdowns? And these athletes will speak of themselves almost in a godlike way, so much so that they'll speak of themselves in the plural. Well, we've been working hard this week, and we, we were able to pull out the victory because of our perseverance. And they speak of themselves in the plural. It's a plural of majesty. It would be comedic if it wasn't so tragic. It's the same spirit that was in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, when he stood on the roof of his palace he said, is this not great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for all of my glory and majesty? Isn't my work great? Isn't my performance glorious? It's like Herod in Acts 12. The text says he puts on his royal robes. He takes a seat on his throne. He delivers an oration to the crowd. And the people were shouting the voice of a God, not a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, the text says. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last breath. He wouldn't give God the glory. He craved it for himself. Man has had this desire for self-glory ever since Genesis. You remember what the people said when they decided to build a tower in Babel? 
You know, they, they didn't say, you know what would be fun? You know what would test our engineering skills and our construction abilities? If we built a really tall building, wouldn't that be great? No, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. They wanted glory. They wanted to be great. They wanted to be able to boast and to brag about how magnificent and powerful they were. But before we get too comfortable, we can see this boasting in ourselves. When we like to talk about ourselves or post about something we've done on social media just so that everybody knows how great we are. But we're certainly not as crass as Nebuchadnezzar or the politician, so we put a hashtag blessed just so that everybody knows how humble we are. We're not bragging. But in our hearts, we, we love the praise, don't we? We like the likes. We enjoy the spotlight. We crave the glory. We can all do this, whether the stage is in front of one or a million. Boasting comes naturally to us because Jesus tells us whatever is in our heart will overflow out of our mouth. And ever since the entrance of sin into this world, we've all had a posture of pride. We've had arrogance in our hearts. That's the connection between Paul's two exhortations. Love does not boast, and it is not arrogant. It doesn't do this, and it is not that. It's because boasting is the fruit that everyone can see, but arrogance is the root in the heart. Bragging is the outside evidence, but pride is the internal posture, and both of them need to be addressed. Let me give us some things that pride does to a man or a woman. First, arrogance blinds you with a sense of false security. Arrogance blinds you with a sense of false security. We've all heard the proverb, pride comes before the fall. We've certainly all seen that. But how many of us watch for that fall in ourselves? Paul addresses such a prideful boaster just a few chapters ago in chapter 10. He says, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Let me give us another example of false security in scripture that's perhaps a little more obscure. If you go back to the minor prophet Obadiah, God is speaking to the Edomites, that's the children of Esau, and he warns them about their pride. He says in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock up in the mountains, you in your lofty dwelling, you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? They thought they were safe. They were impenetrable. Nobody could touch them, but they were deceived. And just a few verses later, it says that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. How many of us have been deceived by pride into a false sense of security? We think because we've got a decent stockpile, we've got a good load at work, or we've got a good 401k, we've had success because we're the most likable guy in our building, or because our guy has been made it into public office, because things seem to be going well, now we're safe. And we rest our security on the things of this world which could be dashed in a moment, rather than trusting on God. We trust in princes and and in men who are but dust and earth rather than the maker of heaven and earth itself. And we trust in our own strength and our performance rather than the one who grants us strength in the first place. And we think we're safe. We 
because these fleeting things and these fickle men. Beware of trusting in men or in your own strength when both can be dashed in a moment. But second, take note that the Bible teaches us a more terrifying truth, that arrogance makes God your enemy. Arrogance makes God your enemy. If God is holy, then it is fitting that he be an enemy of anything that would seek to rival his glory or his holiness. Anything that would seek to contend with him. And so in his perfection, he confronts the contentious. He opposes the self-confident. God speaks to Babylon in Jeremiah 50. Behold, I am against you, O proud one. Your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one will stumble and fall. None will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. He doesn't merely say, you're going to be punished. Don't do that. You're headed the wrong way. He says, I am against you. He, personally, God, the creator of the universe, his sword is infinitely powerful, and it's aimed at the heart of the arrogant. His bow is stretched and his arrow is ready, and nothing is able to protect against the wrath of God. No shield can deflect his shots, and no castle can withstand his blows. God himself is the enemy of the proud, and that leads to a third point about pride. Pride brings a terrible judgment. Pride brings a terrible judgment. Malachi 4, God promises this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant shall be stubble. The day is coming, and I shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. Notice the thoroughness of his judgment. Nothing is left but stubble. Nothing left, not even the roots in the ground are protected from his fiery wrath. So do you think in your pride that you can hide from him? Does your pride deceive you to think that he's not concerned with your little tiny sins? Be not so blind. He sees you. He knows the arrogance of your heart. He will find you out and his judgment will be complete, thorough, and leave nothing untouched. Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Most people do. Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked cities, and God judged them by bringing fire and brimstone down until nothing was left but scorched earth. But why was Sodom judged? What exactly was their sin? Most people think it was the sin of sodomy, so named for the city itself. And for sure they were judged in part for their wicked homosexuality. But their sin was deeper than that. In fact, Ezekiel 16, we hear of God speaking Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They were boastful. They were self-interested, unconcerned with others or with God's glory. And so God justly burned them to the ground. That's the judgment that is earned for the wicked. And we see it throughout scripture. Adam was expelled from the garden and plunged this world into sin because in his pride he thought that he could be like God. Pride led Pharaoh to think that he could defy God and it ended up costing him his son and his whole army. Pride led Korah to rebel against God's leaders over him and God made the earth open up and swallow Korah and his whole family. Pride led Moses to be sinfully angry with God's people and he was unable to enter the promised land. Pride led Saul to sinfully take the role of a priest 
and it was the beginning of his downfall as a king. Pride led David to snatch a woman that didn't belong to him, costing him the life of his own child. Pride led Solomon to be seduced by the idolatry of his many wives and eventually saw the nation of Israel split in two and then carried off into exile. But each of these judgments are but a small foretaste. These are the appetizers. All of them will be exceeded by the final judgment when God promises to return and judge all the boastful. Proverbs 16, 5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. God's wrath will be poured out on any who would dare rob him of his glory. Death, eternal death, unending death in hell is described in terms of a lake of fire. It's what awaits the proud, those who boast in self, those who willfully refuse to listen to God's word and contend with his glory. But you also need to know this, that God's word doesn't only speak judgment to the proud. God's word offers you a way of escape. You see, God's Son has provided a solution, a remedy for our pride, which also averts for us the wrath that we had earned for ourselves. The solution for our haughtiness is the Son of God's humility. The remedy for our boasting, for our being puffed up, is the lowliness of Christ. You see, when all of mankind was unwilling to stay where we belonged, we wanted to clamor for more and more we were unwilling to submit to God, unwilling to honor God. Christ was different. Rather than clamoring for more glory, Christ emptied himself. He lowered himself instead of clinging to that glory that was his by right. He came to serve rather than seeking to be served. He came to seek and to save, which includes the prideful ones. He came to be a ransom rather than seeking riches. He came and was mocked rather than worshipped. He was crowned with thorns, not with glory on this earth. He was whipped and scourged, all because in our pride we refused to give honor to God. But because he was faithful, because he was humble, we can be forgiven. That's the good news. That's the gospel. He took the punishment that the prideful one deserves. And he gives to his people the reward for the truly humble one. And if you're trusting in Christ, that's the good news, and you have been forgiven. God's wrath is no longer aimed at you. Your fate is no longer the same as Sodom's. You've been promised an inheritance, the inheritance that belongs to the meek, to the humble. The kingdom of heaven itself, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to the meek. And in Christ, you have been made meek. If you're not trusting in Christ and his atonement, if you're not forgiven by faith, then ask yourself, why won't I? You heard about the coming judgment that awaits you. It is sure. It is certain. And you've heard about what scripture teaches about Jesus. Don't let your pride prevent you from bending the knee to the only true Savior. He stands as a willing king, ready to subdue your boastful heart and wash you of your guilt, to teach you what it means to be humble. Trust in this Jesus. Flee from the wrath to come and experience the joy and satisfaction which can only be had through humbly trusting in Christ as your king.
Now, in the remainder of our time tonight, I'd like to talk about the opposite of pride. If boasting and arrogance are the problem, the thing that love is not, then humility and lowliness and meekness are the way of love, the fruit of love. Humility is what Paul is encouraging of the believers, the Corinthian believers in our text. But what exactly is humility? Well, I can define it this way with two necessary components. Humility consists of a correct view of oneself combined with an inclination to act accordingly. A correct view of oneself with the inclination to act accordingly. Both of those components are necessary. You can't be truly humble without an accurate estimation of who you are relative to God and to others. And you can't be truly of heart if you're unwilling to act in accordance with that view of yourself in relation to God and others. You need both. If boasting is the fruit and arrogance is the root, we'll see a correlating truth that humility of heart in relation to God is the root and humble actions towards our fellow man will be the fruit. Let's look at each of these two aspects. First, humility requires a correct view of oneself. This accurate self-understanding begins in relation to God. A humble person will see his lowliness in relation to God. This smallness, this lowliness, this creatureliness is true of mankind even before Genesis 3. Before sin ever entered the world, there should have been, there ought to have been, and there was at that time a natural humility, a humility in accordance to our nature compared to God's nature. Think about it. Before Adam ever fell, he was completely upright. He was moral, but he was not God. Think back to the angels in Isaiah 6. The angels who have no sin within them. They're completely good and upright. What do they do around the throne of God? They cover their eyes. There's a natural distinction between the creature and the creator. A huge chasm. They recognize that infinite gap. Likewise, we must recognize who we are. We are but dust. But he is eternal. Abraham realized this in Genesis 18 when he spoke to God. Behold, now I've taken it upon myself to speak with the Lord, but I am simply dust and ashes. See, the proud man has no care for his relation to the Creator. He's unconcerned. He's unwilling to acknowledge it, Romans 1. But a humble man is very aware that he is not God. He's contingent upon God. And that contingency demands humility. But not only does humility require an awareness of our status relative to God, a humble man is aware of his status relative to other men. You see, when When a man knows who he is in relation to God, only then can he see his status, God's status that he's placed on others. To put it another way, when you rightly see who God is, you will see and appreciate the image of God in others. When you know you are but dust, and you know who made the dust, then you can begin to rightly treat others made of dust in the image of God. And everything I've said would be true 
before sin ever entered the world. But now that sin has entered the world, we ought to possess an even greater aspect of humility, a moral humility. Not only do I need to know my status as a creature, even a sinless creature, before sin entered the world, I know also there's a chasm between me and God in terms of morality. I'm defiled, sinful. He is perfectly pure and holy. I'm born in darkness. I crave the dark. He dwells in inapproachable light, Scripture says. That's why Isaiah would say to God, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah was aware of his moral impurity, his sinfulness. The proud man is not so. The proud man or woman, they are always innocent. They're always innocent. They're clean. And even when they're confronted with their impurity, with their sinfulness, they either deny it, they blame shift it, or they minimize it. They deny it like Satan, who said to Adam, you'll surely not die. Contradict God's word. Or he'll say, well, maybe I shouldn't have done this or that, but at least I'm not like him. As if God grades on a curve. And as long as I'm above the curve, he'll let me off the hook. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18. God, I thank you I'm not like that man over there. Humility requires that we see ourselves as creatures. Made of dust. Corrupted by sin. Not blame shifting. That woman you gave me, God. That's what Adam did in his pride. Not minimizing. Not denying. We see ourselves accurately in light of God's word by the blessing of the Holy Spirit revealing to us who we are. And when we do that rightly, we'll see that we can grow in humility. Because we can recall Paul's words from chapter 4. When he told the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Everything you have is grace. And so humility requires a proper view of oneself in relation to God and to others. But it also requires of us the inclination to act accordingly. I'm building off of some things that Jonathan Edwards wrote in uh, Charity and Its Fruits, if you're interested in more. He goes way deeper than I do, so be thankful. Um, but the inclination part is where we get to the how. This all sounds great, preacher. I want to be like that. I affirm that's a good thing. That's a, that's a pleasant thing. I like that in other people. I want that in myself. How do I get this? And the answer there is the good news of Jesus again. The gospel isn't just for us to avoid wrath. It's also for us to grow in grace. How can I grow in humility and willingly serve others, even others that I don't like? By remembering that Jesus served those who hated him. How can I forgive someone who has been so mean and abusive to me? By remembering that Jesus prayed for forgiveness for those who hated him. How can I stop being so frustrated when people don't do what I tell them? By remembering that Jesus came to redeem me 
the one who never did what he was told? How can I grow in humble patience towards others, those that seem to exist only to annoy me? By remembering how long-suffering and how patient Christ has been towards me. How can I humbly honor those who are above me? Children, how do I honor my parents? Parents, how do I honor my parents? Citizens, how do we honor our leaders? Sheep, how do we honor our shepherds? By remembering that Christ perfectly cared for and honored those above him, including his heavenly Father, in order to forgive rebellious souls like me and like you. How can I quit being dominated by what others think about me, which is pride, fear of man, how can I stop being afraid of what they might say behind my back or if I underperform, if I don't measure up to the expectation? I'm remembering that Christ has absorbed every drop of God's wrath for you and now you are instead adopted into his household and have been given an eternal inheritance and divine favor that cannot be taken from you. That's a security that nothing on this earth can shake. And if that's the case, what can, what can the frown of any man or woman do to me when I have the smile of God? Next week, we'll get more into the practical realm, the outworking, more about the fruit of humility. But for now, I'd like to close with one final application. This past week was our missions conference, and I thought it would be fitting to relate humility to missions and evangelism. We can apply it this way. If you want to grow in your evangelism, you want to be a better at speaking the truth of the gospel and love to those around you, if you want to see more fruit, my primary suggestion, other than earnest prayer, is to seek humility. Those who want to see more souls saved don't usually need to read another book or attend another training or learn some nifty evangelistic tool, as helpful as those might be. Rather, prayerful humility is often the greatest tool for evangelistic effectiveness. And why do I say that? Think about, in your mind, the most boastful, prideful person you know. Maybe it's a family member, a co-worker, a celebrity. The most braggadocious, arrogant, puffed-up, conceited, boastful jerk you can think of. Now answer this. What effect does that person have on others? Are they not repulsive? Don't they repel people with their arrogance? They make you want to be anywhere on earth other than in the room with them. Now if that's the case, wouldn't the opposite be true? Aren't the humble people that you know a joy to be around? They're not always talking about themselves. In fact, they're concerned about you. They're listening to you. They're caring for you. The proud are repulsive, but the humble are magnetic. I think it's part of the reason why Jesus always seems to have a crowd of people around him. Read the Gospels. How many times does it say that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd? For sure, some of them wanted to just see a miracle. Some of them wanted bread for their stomachs, but many of them were drawn to Jesus because of his magnetic humility. 
And if we share in the humility of Christ, how many people might be drawn to us, want to be with us, spend time with us, and listen to the message we have? If you want to repel people, brag about yourself. It's a surefire way to end up alone or surrounded by other braggarts that annoy you. If you want people to run off, just talk about yourself all the time. But if you want to attract people, if you want open ears and soft hearts, prayerfully seek humility and see your evangelistic efforts transformed. Boast in Christ, not in yourself. That's the key to evangelistic success and to lasting growth in our Christian pursuit of humility. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the humility of Christ. We thank you that he came down, that he bore the sins of his people, that he might redeem a sinful and defiled bride who was arrogant to the core. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be within us, that every day he would be making us more and more holy, more and more humble, and help us use our humility to spread the good news of your gospel to a boastful world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing the doxology.